do you have memories of building a fort? Fort is what, what our family called them, interesting military language, now that I think back upon it. But, you know, you'd build a little hidey hold under a table. You'd get all the sheets out and make your mother mad and pull all the pillows off of beds and then pull all the chairs and make it extend so it had passageways. Who has not done that? <laughs> and I, I still have the sensation in my body of what building that little secluded spot felt like away from the household. I knew no one could see or hear what I was up to, right? It was small, secluded, you know, uh, as I was writing this, I thought, oh, it was the original tiny house impulse. <laughs> That's just grown-ups wanting a little fort. And it, what it does is it kind of reduces the world to a manageable space. And then you get in there and go, oh, well, I need a snack. <laughs> Food is always my first impulse. Oh, and I need my stuffed animals and a book. So I'd always supply it with all that flashlight, supply it with all the essentials. If you go downstairs right now, is it still there? Uh, are you, just to see what our children are up to, they've made this glorious cardboard castle, and they've been using it for the last month or so as their hideout, and it is a deluxe cardboard construction, has moving parts and decorations, and I think it has a solar window up top, a lookout. It's really this fabulous place of imagination. And I have to say, it has been such a weird week that the idea of having a little hideout sounds so delicious. And may our being together this morning give us each. This is not unlike a hiding space. Just imagine that's a sheet. <laughs> so that we can cope with the news cycle and the trauma and rage and despair and accusations. and It's disorienting, all these emotions flying back and forth. Many churches are addressing the Supreme Court nomination head-on, and I, I prefer giving current news a little more time to settle and also to be a resistance against this increasing reactionary social media. And the idea of a hidey-hole, some place you can hide, I don't think it's just a children's game or an impulse of wanting to hide from the news, but, but the season of fall, of harvest, brings it up. Hiding in a stack of leaves, hiding in a haystack, pulling the covers up over your head, having some weight on top of you, are all signs that summer's over, the crops brought in, and winter is coming. And if we look at our Jewish roots... Their tradition commands that each family create, in essence, a little hidey hole, a shelter, for five days, right after Yom Kippur. In, and they call them booths or huts. Sukkot is the Hebrew, the plural Hebrew. 
what Jewish families are supposed to do is dwell inside the Sukkot during this week-long celebration. So the singular, the sukkah, sukkah, what it does is it represents the huts that farmers would live in during the last hectic period of harvest before the coming of the winter rains. There was mention of people growing up on farms at 10 o'clock during our discussion of the environmental book. And a sukkah is specifically supposed to be a flimsy structure. It, it has, it's commanded that you have three sides, so one is open, and then the roof is supposed to be made of branches or thatch. So the top provides some shade, but also you're supposed to be able to see the stars at night. And it's traditional to, sp- to decorate them and spend as much time as possible, weather permitting, meals are eaten inside. And the hardier sleep outside in them. And ancestors are symbolically invited to partake meals. Has anyone eaten a meal in a Sukkot? It's really quite wonderful. If you're ever invited. What this Jewish holiday does is celebrate the way God protected the Jewish tribe under difficult desert conditions. So to reframe this impulse for our diverse theologies, it's a recreation of gratitude, of reminders of physical hardships and liberation and having survived all that. And their ritual prayer that they say at every meal pays homage to the creator of time and space who enriches our lives. And it's, of course, like all good uh, religious traditions, it's the co-opting of something secular and saying, let's really acknowledge how sacred this moment is. So it's an evolution of rural celebrations of the season, overlaid with the common Jewish theme of liberation, liberation from slavery. On the other hand... If the thought of being in a small space with your family for a week (laughs) sends shivers down your spine, then this is actually the other side of the current fall season, of the social climate, of the political climate. We talk about harvest and being together in these idealized terms, as if harvest is always bountiful, not as if being with those you love is always fabulous. It's not. Beloved community is spoken with great reverence. I capitalize the phrase when I write it. But building community, building community, being in community, being Hope Church is really quite hard and messy. It just is. So I've been reading and listening to the ideas of Alain de Botton. If you haven't heard of him, he's an English philosopher. And he's written about art, he's written about architecture, he's written about Proust, religion. Many of you will be interested in this title. He's written Religion for Atheists, A Non-Believer's Guide to the Uses of Religion, where he argues 
as many of us do here in this congregation, that supernatural ideas aren't helpful. Yet, some aspects of religion are still essential and can be applied in secular life and society. But that's not what I've been reading. He's interested in emotional intelligence. That's a piece of it. He's interested in creating ways for emotional maturity to be taught, to be taught in the same way universities teach scientific and humanity truths at advanced levels. And he's the one who wrote uh, what is now the most clicked on New York Times article, um, particularly in the, it was published in the raucous 2016 year, and in that year it was the most clicked on article, not political or presidential election stuff, but this article called Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. I will offer a spate of free uh, relationship counseling next week. (laughs) Why you will marry the wrong person. And what he suggests, that as people and as a culture, we would be much saner and much happier if we would just re-examine our very view of love. Nowhere do we realistically teach ourselves and our children how love deepens and stumbles, survives and evolves over time, and how that process has much more to do with ourselves than what is right or wrong about our partner. I'll repeat that. (laughs) Love deepens and stumbles survives and evolves and that process has so much more to do with ourselves than with what is right or wrong with our partner and you heard a little bit of what he says in in our first in our second reading about love instead of showing our best sides we should say well how are you crazy <laughs> i'm crazy like this Although I have to say, it has taken a long marriage to finally go, oh, I'm crazy like this. (laughs) There should be a mutual acceptance that two, and you may be uncomfortable with the word damaged, we'll say experienced. (laughs) People are trying to get together because pretty much all of us are. He talks about how messy and complicated loving another is, and we bring all this idealizations to the project. And our literature, our music, art, and even commerce all create this unhelpful romanticism. So Debutant proposes, a wiser culture than ours would recognize that the start of a relationship is not the high point that romantic art assumes. It is merely the first step in a much longer, more ambivalent, and yet quietly audacious journey on which we should direct our intelligence and scrutiny. Finding a love or a life partner is not only embarking on long-term relationships, but there's work. I think this applies to work and friendships 
And since we're here in our carved space, it has a lot to do with a church. Because we share this hope for a happily ever after here. Our desire to create a beloved religious community resembles our efforts to fall in love. People are so excited when they find us. It's just like falling in love. Because I observe people come to the church, I came to the church looking for answers to life's deepest problems and questions. And it's not unlike seeking a lover. We want companionship. We want someone to walk alongside us through thick and thin. We want to be understood fully. We want a culture that brings out our very best nature. We want to learn a few new things. We want comfort. We want to be challenged, but not in any shaming or harmful way. Everyone coming up this hill, including me, brings our hopes and our fears and our idealizations and what he calls damage our experiences. And we all want church to be this place where we can experience a moment of utopia, a hidey hole, everyone's flashlight has batteries and they work. You've got just the right snack. People are going to leave you alone when you want to be left alone. They're going to approach you when you want to be approached. But these ideals pointing us forward can be traps. Perfection. Perfection is impossible. I quote De Botton again. We must fiercely resist the idea that true love must mean conflict-free love. That the course of true love is smooth. It is not. The course of true love is rocky and bumpy at the best of times. That's the best we can manage as the creatures we are. It's no fault of mine, no fault of yours. It has to do with being human. And the more generous we can be towards this flawed humanity, the better chance we'll have of doing the true hard work of love. So at Hope, we try to hold on to these opposing and balanced notions. We Unitarians and Universalists embrace paradox. It is the nature of reality to hold these opposing truths together. We want this ideal, and we are sloppy, messy human beings. We aspire to be fully hospitable to each and every person, to every stranger, to everyone who's been here forever, and yet it's impossible to do. We trip, stumble, and fall over and over again. When people look, think, act, speak outside of some not really established but well-established familiar norms. I've, I've lifted this up before in our new member ceremony. We speak our humanness. We say, please know that churches aren't perfect. A time may come when the church disappoints you. A time may come through action or inaction, you fail the church. Please know that the covenant between us offers the hope of healing as long as we stay in relation with each other.
The power of covenant does not mean it doesn't matter what happened. It does assert, though, that what is important is what happens next. You are now part of us, and we are part of you. So we remind ourselves that we fully aspire to create a welcoming space for all, work to build a beloved community, and we fall short. If you say to people, look, love is painful, a painful, poignant, touching attempt by two flawed individuals to try and meet each other's needs in situations of gross uncertainty and ignorance about who the other person is, but we're going to do our best. We're going to do our best. That's a much more generous starting place rather than we're perfect and we're doing this. Even in our notion of of harvest, we idealize this fall harvest, when harvest is a culmination of a process not unlike love, planting and tending a garden or a farm to dwell in the harvest is to witness the outcome of planting and tending and nurturing and protecting from wild weather and maybe hopefully sort of kind of harvesting. I don't know how many of you have had luck with your gardens this year, but it's been wacky. Tomatoes in October, okay. So how might our relationships be different and better and better if we understood that the real work of love is not in the falling, but in what comes after? To dwell in the harvest of love reminds me of karma that Hindu and Buddhist term describing the reality that each moment of our life, right now, right this second, is a culmination of all that came before. We reap what we sow. What we do today plays out in tomorrow. All those things we think don't matter impact this next moment and this next moment. So our building beloved community together means being real, being real, accepting our imperfections. And the reason for moving to this radical, vulnerable self-acceptance is it grounds any relationship. We don't believe in superstition and fantasy. It grounds any relationship in reality. Only after we've made this turn to be real to humility, to accepting our imperfections and everyone else's imperfections? Can we then be generous to ourselves and the person in front of us? We often lift up the first and seventh principles, but I think it's the second and third Unitarian Universalist principles that matter here. We want justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. And you can't do that if you aren't accepting what's real in your own limitations. And we want acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations. And if we expect everyone to be on some perfect spiritual path, we're going to be miserable. So how do we love others out of our own flaws? We have to remember that people don't learn 
or thrive when conditions are harsh or stressful. And we know this instinctively with children. We learn when, when there is sweetness and tenderness and patience. I do. I know exactly how it feels to learn or when, when someone's pressuring you and that's when I make all the more mistakes. And so Debuton suggests this. One of the kindest things we can do with our lover, and I'd add our partner or colleague or fellow church member, is to see them as children. I and he certainly do not mean to infantilize them. But you know how it is when you're dealing with children as parents or as adults. We're incredibly generous with them. For example, if a child says, I hate you, you immediately go, okay. <laughs> That's probably not quite true. Hold on. <coughs> They're probably tired or hungry. (coughs) 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 My apologies. You know, their tooth hurts. We're always looking for some really benevolent reason for the way they're acting out. And if we could only do that for adults. If only we did that. If we only didn't take everything personally and instead thought, you know, that person has pressures, I have no idea, and they came up the hill and at the bottom they probably had a flat tire and now they're going to have to call AAA. Who knows? We all need support in bringing about the most kind and generous conditions for any relationship. I printed out for us uh, my committee on ministry. We were talking about some of the issues in the church, and we said, you know, we have this covenant of healthy relations, but we never talk about it because it hides in the cover of the uh, um, board handbook. And what, what this is is just a reminder that we do want to bring our best selves and that we don't have to do it alone and that if you're stuck or in tension, there are some steps. It suggests if you're struggling with someone, go first to that person, but there are others who are around to help navigate what might be rocky situations. This repairing a broken covenant demands forbearance and generosity, imagination, and thinking, oh, they might be tired, rather than spinning out your narrative of why they acted the way they did. We have to fiercely resist that idea that true love means conflict-free love. The course of love is not smooth. The course of true love and of beloved community is rocky and bumpy at the best of times. That's the best we can manage as the creatures we are, that flawed humanity 
the better chance we'll have of doing the true hard work of love together. May it be so.